Today we're going to deal with the 11th episode in Ulysses, which takes place in the Ormond Hotel, on Upper Ormond Quay, on the Liffey. And as we look out the window, on our left we can see Grattan Bridge, which, to confuse things, Joyce refers to as Essex Bridge, which was its previous name. It was called Essex Bridge. And across the bridge and to the left is Wellington Quay. I mention that because the last time we saw Bloom, he was buying a book for his wife in Merchant's Arch, which is at the next bridge, which has many names too, the Haveney Bridge, the Metal Bridge, Liffey Bridge, Wellington Bridge, take your pick, usually they call it the Haveney Bridge. Anyway, he came out of there and came up along Wellington Quay, crossed the bridge. Yes, Mr. Bloom, crossed Bridge of Essex. To Martha I must write, by paper, dailies. Girl there, civil. Bought some notepaper and came into the Ormond Hotel where you are now sitting and maybe we feel some of the vibrations of where he was. What do you think, Fritz? Well, it's a chapter that the action is really quite trivial. When you summarize what's going on, there isn't much to it. It's more the form that makes it special. What we have is we're in the Ormond Hotel where we're two barmaids that we've seen in the previous chapter. Am I awfully sunburnt? Miss Bronze unbloused her neck. No. Said Miss Kennedy. It gets brown after. Did you try the borax with the cherry laurel water? Miss Deuce half stood to see her skin askance in the bar mirror, gilded lettered, where hock and claret glasses shimmered. People come in that we've also seen in the previous chapter. They seem to converge on the Ormond Hotel. There's Simon Douglas, there's Lenehan. And Bloom is walking, as we heard on the other side, to Wellington Quay, not seen, by the way. He crosses the bridge, and as he's buying stationery to answer the letter he got this morning, he sees Blaze's boiler on the jaunting car and wonders why Boylan is there, because he has an appointment, that Bloom knows, at four o'clock, and he's close to four o'clock. He eyed and saw afar on Essex Bridge a gay hat riding on a jaunting car. It is. Third time. Coincidence. Jingling on supper robbers, it jaunted from the bridge to Ormond Quay. Follow. Risk it. Go quick. At four. Near now. Out. Tubin, sir. The shop girl dared to say. Ah, I was forgetting. Excuse. And four. At four, she. So Bloom follows him and sees the car drawn up in front of the hotel, then meets Richard Goulding, that would be... Stephen's maternal uncle. Hello. Where off to? Something to eat? I too was just... In here, what? Ormond? Best value in Dublin. Is that so? Dining room. Sit tight there. See, not be seen. I think I'll join you. Come on. Richie led on. Bloom followed bag. Dinner fit for the prince. And so Bloom goes in, not so much to eat, but to see what Boylan is doing, and he goes into the dining room, which is separate from the bar, but he obviously can see the bar, and sits down and has a meal. Boylan takes a hasty drink, he has an appointment with Lenehan, and then is off, and in the chapter we have the stages of Boylan's progress to Eccles Street. You have to say, I suppose... That Boylan, when he leaves the yeah. bar very quickly, 
that he is going to another appointment, and he is going, oh, yes. we know yeah. that he's going to yeah. the appointment with Bloom's wife, Molly. I'm off, said Boylan with impatience. He slid his chalice brisk away, grasped his change. Wait a shake. Begged Lenehan, drinking quickly. I wanted to tell you, Tom Rochford. Come on to Blazes, said Blazes Boylan, going. Lenehan gulped to go. Got the horn or what, he said. More people come, Cowley, Ben Dollard, and there is a piano in the back room, and they start playing a few tunes, singing a few beginnings, and then there are two performances, two areas that are sung. One is from the opera Martha by the German composer Floto, and later on, Ben Dollard, a bass, he sings the croppy boy that everyone knows. Bloom writes a letter to Martha Clifford, a very hasty letter, he's not particularly important in following it up, and then leaves and goes up the key. That, in a way, is all the action. When first I saw that tormenting sorrow from me seems to depart each graceful Same time where you talk about bridges, but it's in this chapter where the location is not prominent. In the previous chapter we always know where we are, but here it is not even easy to figure out for foreigners where we are, say, in the hotel. And as I said, the action here is not the main thing. In fact, it's very trivial. What makes this chapter stand out, and it certainly did for early readers, is its formal presentation that Joyce makes the chapter as much music as language will ever allow. So he uses the musical sound potential of language, so that he has lots of assonances, um, onomatopoetic glides that are phonetic. In desire, dark to lick flow, invading, tipping her, tipping her, tapping her, topping her, tap, pause to dilate, dilating, tap, the joy, the feel, the warm, the tap, to pour o'er sluices, pouring gushes, flood, gush, flow, joy gush, tap, throp, now, language of love. And he saturates the whole chapter with musical allusions. Songs are mentioned, songs are quoted, there are composers. Some of the repetitions, many of them are more musical than semantic. In fact, meaning seems to recede a little bit and the sound effect is much more important. That makes it fairly difficult and fairly slow reading. And also, the chapter fuses here description, interior monologue, and even an awareness of the chapter that it is a composition. We find here, for example, a reference when Bloom orders a meal, certainly says... As said before, he ate with relish the inner organs, nutty gizzards, fried cods, rose. Which takes us back to the beginning of the Bloom chapters. So in other words, it is as though the chapter itself as a work of art, a composition, had a kind of mind and memory, an awareness of its own. So we move into another level. In other words, we are in an artifact that shows itself as an artifact. In, in some way, the narrative cards are on the table. And that was a departure that was followed uh, very often afterwards. Uh, Flannery O'Brien is a good instance where the characters of an author gang up against the author and things like that. It's the same type of thing which became very prominent in the 20th century. And that is a striking feature. Bronze by gold heard the hoof irons, steely ringing. Impertinent, impertinent, 
Chips, picking chips off rocky thumbnail. Chips. Horrid. And gold flushed more. A husky fife note blew. Blue. Blue bloom is on the... Gold pinnacled hair. A jumping rose on satiny breasts of satin. Rose of Castile. Trilling. Trilling. I I think a word must be said about the opening. The opening consists of fragments that I can't say don't make sense, seem to suggest some sense, but are not obvious. It's like a trying out of motives. We later then say, well, you find that in music, you can call it overture, you can call it prelude, you can call it a tuning up or, or something like that. It also looks like jottings for a chapter to come. And we now know, of course, that this is a kind of preparation for the whole chapter, that all of these fragments will be taken up later on and expanded, or the other way around, there are foreshortenings of what is yet to come. So that the whole story, in a way, is told twice. And this overture, if that's the good term, and you can argue that, is a characteristic of the chapter. It is music choice tried to push language as far as possible, and here it really comes into its own. Molly, in quis est homo, mercadante, my ear against the wall to hear. Want a woman who can deliver the goods. Jog, jig, jog, stopped. Dandy tan shoe of dandy boiling, socks sky blue, clocks came light to earth. Oh, look, we are so. Chamber music. Could make a kind of pun on that. It is a kind of music I often thought when she... Acoustics, that is. Tinkling. Empty vessels make most noise. Because the acoustics, the resonance changes according as the weight of the water is equal to the law of falling water. Like those... Rhapsodies of lists, Hungarian, gypsy-eyed, pearls, drops, rain, diddle diddle addle addle oodle oodle hiss. Now, maybe now, before. One rapped on a door, one tapped with the knock. Did he knock, Paul de Cock, with a loud, proud knocker, with a cock, cara, 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 cock, cock, cock. The other thing is that when you look at the characters that are in this episode, very few of them have jobs. Boylan and Lidwell, who's a solicitor, who doesn't seem to be taking a great deal of care of his practice, yeah, yeah. and he seems to be more uh, intent on flirting with one of the barmaids yeah, yeah. than anything else. And a few of them have brilliant futures behind them, as, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. as you might say. Yeah, yeah. What you said is something that really, I may say, as an... Uh, pedantic, hard-working Swiss. Always I'm a bit struck by the fact that Ulysses, which is the modern city novel, does not have people bustling at their jobs, but most of them are in the streets or in pubs. Bloom does a bit, one hour, in the newspaper office. Stephen does a bit of teaching, but most of it is spent in gatherings. But it is strange that the, the novel we take to be typical of 20th century city life, in this sense, is certainly not typical. But the other thing is that uh, a lot of the characters in this chapter or episode have no money. Yep. Lenehan comes into the bar, speaks to the barmaid and is rebuffed, and then speaks to Simon Dedalus, who is rather frosty with him as yep. well. Greetings from the famous son of a famous father. Who may he be? Mr. Dedalus asked. Lenehan opened most genial arms. Who? Who may he be? He asked. Can you ask? Stephen, 
the youthful bard. Dry. But he can't even buy a drink. He has no money, obviously. And he always depends on somebody yeah, standing him a yes. drink or getting him a cigarette. He's yes. one of these professional, what you call them... Um, scroungers. Scroungers. And he pays off with a kind of a store of jokes and limericks and uh, that most people have heard before. I know that kind of tavern. I'm sure you know them much better than I do. Yes, but he, he knows French. Yeah, at, yeah, that's again an interesting thing that they have a kind of high level of mm. knowledge and, uh, ex and of course they can express themselves mm. very well. That, that is something. Well, Simon Dedalus, who having met his daughter and reluctantly parted with a shilling, yeah. and I think he gave her tuppence as well. Yeah, very little. Yeah. Very little. Yeah. He has money, he has a small whiskey, yeah. and he doesn't offer to buy a drink for anyone. By the way, Boylan comes in and he, he gets Lennon a drink. Oh, he does. And he himself orders a slow gin, which is something non-alcoholic, and we can see why, because you don't want to have a beery kind of breath <laughs> when you are going for that kind of engagement, so we have something very sweet, which Molly later will remark upon. Yes, but even then, he doesn't actually ask Lenehan what he wants. He offers him what was probably one of the cheapest drinks there were, a glass of bitter. What's your cry? Glass of bitter. Glass of bitter, please, and a slow gin for me. There is another thing in the, the chapter, the jingling, that goes through it. Mm -hmm. You hear jingles all the time yeah. with boiling on its outside car. Jingle jaunted down the keys, blazes sprawled on bounding tyres. Joyce here, in the musical way, gives each character, not so much Bloom, but Boylan, the Pat the Waiter, quite a distinct kind of musical form, and, and Boylan is all jingle jaunty, jaunting car, he is jaunty, and the jingle also is an echo of the bed, Bloom's bed, that jingle there. So, and that's a typical example of what I would say in musical analogy, as though several instruments were playing at the same time. One plays the bed, and the other one plays the harness, and it all comes together. And one way of looking at it is as though a whole orchestra were playing, audience in most of the time, but the attention, because language is sequential, one after the other, the attention can only be on one at any given moment, but we have to imagine that things are going on while they're playing the piano, Bloom is eating, Boylan is running, all of this is going on, and Joyce can really create an illusion of simultaneous things, which language can never handle, it can only enumerate them. So it's a very rich and rewarding, to which one inevitably, I think, would have to go back on a first reading. I'm quite sure most people are lost, just as Ezra Pound and Harriet Weaver, Joyce's supporters, were. Miss Deuce reached high to take a flagon, stretching her satin arm, her bust that all but burst so high. Oh, oh. Jerked Lenehan, gasping at each stretch. Oh. But easily she seized her prey and led it low in triumph. One of the ironies is in this Homeric, not parallel, well, I hope not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's the sirens that seduce yeah. everyone. Yeah. And here we have the sirens silent. Uh, certainly they don't sing, uh, they listen to They sing a little move. bit. Uh, one of them sings, Oh, yeah. oh, oh, oh I Dolores, which is a, oh, from My Dolores, <laughs> she sings I Dolores and gets an idol in. So mm. there is a bit. Gaily, Miss Deuce polished a tumbler, trilling. Queen of the Eastern Seas. 
No, uh, their attraction is more physical and visual. Mm. I mean, one of them, by the way, at the request of Lenahan for the benefit of Boylan, does a sort of trick by snapping her garter against the thigh. I can't quite visualize it. Afterwards. Miss Deuce promised coyly. No, now. Urged Lenahan. Sonny Lecloche. Oh, do. There's no one. She looked quick. Miss Ken out of earshot. Sudden bent. Two kindling faces watched her bend. Quavering, the chord strayed from the air, found it again, lost chord, and lost and found it faltering. Go on, do, Sonny. Bending, she nipped a peak of skirt above her knee, delayed, taunted them still, bending, suspending, with willful eyes. Sonny. Smack. She let free, sudden, in rebound, her nipped elastic garter smack warm against her smackable woman's warm hose tie. La cloche! cried gleeful Lenahan. Trained by owner, no sawdust there. She smile smirked, supercilious. Wept, aren't men? But lightward gliding, mild, she smiled on Boylan. You're the essence of vulgarity. She, in gliding, said. And so there's the seduction. The seduction is by music sung by others, it's by appearance, it's also seduction by drink. So that motive is perpetuated. Yes, but even then it fails because it's Lenehan who tries to persuade her to do it, obviously having seen it before. But she looks at Boylan and does it, and then Boylan goes off in a hurry, and we see her looking rather dolefully out the oh, window yeah. Yeah. Uh, onto the key, as yeah. we are doing now, yeah. and wondering, because she did it, did he hurry off? Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Smitten. The smiting light. She lowered the drop blind with a sliding cord. She drew down, pensive. Why did he go so quick when I... Why did he go so quick when mm-hmm. I... Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how Joyce can compress a kind of disappointment and sadness into the most ordinary words. Mm. I mean, that's an element, I think, for all the amusement, and it's a performative chapter, there is an undertone of sadness and loneliness. Bloom, obviously, some have debts, the barmaids have their stories and disappointments, and you immerse yourself in, in music or in drink just to forget uh, every day and all of that. Come on, Simon, give us a ditty. We heard the piano. Bald Pat, bothered waiter, waited for drink orders. Power for Richie. And Bloom? Let me see. Not make him walk twice. His corns. Four now. How warm this black is. Coarse nerves a bit. Refracts, is it? Heat? Let me see. Cider, yes. Bottle of cider. As I said, most characters have their distinct rhythm and intonation and all of that. It's the jaunty jingle of Boylan. Um, it is, there's a waiter there, Pat, who is bothered, which I had to learn was an Irish word for deaf. It's still used. Well, it's not, not quite not deaf. It's hard of hearing. Hard of hearing, okay. Yeah, you're bothered. So, so yes. he is, and it says deaf is hard of hearing. And he is always described in monosyllables. He brought Pat. Think like that. So it, it's a kind of staccato. There is also at a certain point in the chapter. It's a chapter that has many paragraphs consisting of only one word, that, that mm. gives it much more weight and power. Uh, so at a certain point, you get a, a tap interrupting, and there, there's more taps. And I don't think we can automatically know from the beginning what this is. But the more it goes on, at a certain point, we realize this is the blind stripling. 
that Bloom helped across the street in chapter eight, who comes back to retrieve his tuning fork. And it's interesting that for Joyce, the lack of hearing in the chapter which is devoted to the ear is pat and blindness is tap. So there are these elements too. And Joyce plays a lot with the English language that has many monosyllabic words, tap, tip, top, even top, and all of that. It is, by the way, a chapter that is almost impossible to translate with these musical effects. Tap, 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 tap. Mata it is, coincidence, just going to write. Lionel's song. Lovely name you have. Can't write. Accept my little press. One thing we haven't really touched on is, uh, I mean, Bloom is writing a letter to Martha responding, not in a great mood, but he has to do it when Richie Goulding is sitting near or opposite him. And of course, you can't just say, I'm writing a letter to some lady who is not my wife. And so he carefully hides what he's writing behind the newspaper and he pretends that he's writing a business letter, an advertisement. So he murmurs, dear sir, and references. And in reality, he writes to uh, this, not a very enthusiastic letter. In fact, he, he just says, I have no time to write and I'll write something else. And there's a bit of flirtation going about. And he adds two and six, a postal mm. order. It's a very strange thing for me to to give her some money, which was quite a bit of money at the time. Hmm? But, well, but the last letter was even more extraordinary in closed stamps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so again, there's something I don't quite figure out why he does it. But interesting that he's disguising what he does. He's a kind of a disuse. Blot over the other, so he can't read. Right. But he's peculiarly honest yeah. in his P.S. Yeah. In saying that he's lonely and sad. Yeah. I mean, that is the only time that he admits it. P.P.S. La 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 re. I feel so sad today. La re. So lonely. D. He blotted quick on pad of pat. Envel, address. Just copy out of paper. Murmured. Messrs. Callan, Coleman and Co. Limited. Henry wrote. Miss Martha Clifford. Care. P.O. Dolphins Barn Lane. He doesn't indicate that to yeah. anyone else. True, he keeps yeah. it to himself. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a rather peculiar relationship. Yeah, yeah. By the way, all of the letters in the book have PSs. It's interesting. <laughs> Always something added there. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Afterthoughts, yeah, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Another point I'd like to throw in is in the previous chapter, Wandering Rocks, with the various sections where we know quite well where we are, and it has, as we heard, these displaced passages that belong to another place and seem to take place at the same time, a suggestion of simultaneity. And this previous chapter develops in us, in some readers, not in all naturally, a sense of things happening elsewhere, elsewhereness, which is carried over into this chapter. At the beginning, we are with the barmaids, and at the same point it says, a man, and then it says, but bloom, as though the chapter wanted to make us aware, while we're in the Ormond Hotel, there's also a character we know, Bloom, outside. And this awareness of things taking place elsewhere is where, in fact, the main action takes place, if anywhere, in Eccles Street, mm. where Boyle is about to do his singing, and we all know that it will not be singing only at a certain time, something else will happen. And we're kept aware of his progress. 
right through. As we're listening to the action yeah. in the bar, yeah. there's interpolations yeah. of where exactly Boylan is. Until he knocks on the door. And yeah. we know exactly the route he took yeah. and yeah. where he was at each time. Another yeah. thing is, Bloom is fairly close to home, I think. I mean, he could go home in, I would say, 15 oh, yes. minutes. Uh, he could uh, say, I lost, I forgot my key or something. The fact that he carefully doesn't even think of going home shows that he is in some odd way conniving in it. He allows it to happen. It's even hinted at some places he might get a certain distorted satisfaction out of the whole thing. Yeah. Well, problem. if I can anticipate and go to the end of the book mm. at, to Molly's soliloquy, she says, she remembers him saying that he'd dine out and then go to yeah. the gaiety. So he, he said he wouldn't be home, yeah. so it would have looked as yeah, yeah. though he was in a sort of entrapment yeah, yeah. had uh, he gone home. That is something I often wondered. I mean, he said quite clearly, I mean, we, we got that, I'm going to the gaiety. Mm. How would Molly and Boylet feel totally at ease that the husband, who may easily change his mind, just comes back? I mean, it might happen. I, in this situation, would not feel very much comfortable. The psychology of Bloom is very strange, and I don't think we can fathom it easily. Uh, it seems to me that their marriage after 16 years has gone a bit stale, which I assume can happen. Molly is ready for a, a kick or something like that. Bloom allows it to happen, we know that. The whole day is motivated by that. He may get a certain satisfaction, but his thoughts continually return to Molly. So Molly is also an absent siren. He's very devoted to her. He's proud of her. He thinks of her. Once There's even a point when it says, the proppy boy, I'm the last of my race. Name and race. Name and race. And Bloom thinks too, of course he has no son, who would perpetuate the name and the race. And Adamo says, perhaps there still could be something. So the possibility of renewing former relationship is not totally excluded. Last of his name and race. I too last my race. Millie, young student. Well, my fault perhaps. No son. Rudy. Too late now, or if not, if not, if still. But who, who is to blame for this? We do know that the ultimate cause of the rift between Molly and Leopold is the death of their son Rudy. Yeah. But why have they had no sexual relations for more than 10 years? Uh, I don't think there are no sexual relations. Well, uh, they obviously sexual. didn't risk having another child. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was no intercourse with insemination. Mm -hmm. They avoided that. It is left totally ambiguous in the book about yeah. the relationships. No. And Joyce, on the whole, knows fairly well at least how his characters are moving, how they get from one mm -hmm. point to other, whether it's in the book or not. There's so, so much that Joyce tells us that we almost think we have to know everything and speculate about what we don't know. And that's again a characteristic. Mm. The more details we know, the more th those that we do not know become important. And we also certainly doubt certain things that we thought we knew. This is one of the dilemmas which choice presents. That's it. Oh.